as we begin reading in Genesis chapter 6, in the beginning of verse 5, it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood, make rooms in the ark, and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark is 300 cubits, its breadth 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above, and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks, for behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you and your sons, your wife and your sons' wives, with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. My grandson Malachi is wrestling this year, and I was pretty thrilled to hear that he was going to do that. Wrestling was always my favorite sport. And, and uh and so we've had some fun watching him at the tournaments and, and going to a few practices that he's uh, that he goes to up in the falls and 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 wrestling around with him a little bit on the floor, showing him some moves and that kind of stuff, which is difficult because you know the size difference between me and him. And uh, not only that, I don't want to do it too long because he keeps beating me, right, Malachi? And, uh, <laughs> but it, it was kind of funny last uh, last week. I was showing him a I was showing him a move and. And uh, and he watched it, and then and then he says to me, he says, "Papa, how come you know a bunch of stuff about wrestling that I don't know?" <laughs> I said, "Well, because I wrestled for a long, a lot of years, a long time ago." <laughs> and I said, "But you'll learn them." Uh, and uh, then later in the week, I was uh, thumbing through some sports channels on TV, and I came across uh, the the college wrestling championships and so the the national championships at the collegiate level and i always like to turn into those uh, tune into those each time each time year during this time and uh, so i started watching those and i thought you know this would be a fun thing so, so i recorded a bunch of them to watch with uh with malachi later we haven't had a chance to do it yet but uh, maybe a little later today or something and because I want him to see how the guys that are really good at it do it, and I want him to kind of see a little bit more what it's all about. And you know, you can 
No matter what you're doing, I don't care if it's a sport or, a, or an occupation or a hobby, you can learn a lot by watching people that know what they're doing do it. And, and you know, that, that's really, when I think about it, that's what we're doing this morning, too. Because we're gathering here together here and, and we're, we're reading through some of these things and, and reading about different people. And, and to this morning it's Noah. And we're looking at Noah. But you know what the Bible tells us in the New Testament, looking back at the Old Testament, it says these people were written down, these events were written down as in, in, in samples or examples for you to learn from. And so that's exactly what we're doing is we're, we're looking back at somebody that's great. There's one, there's one match in particular that I'm looking forward to watching with Malachi. I haven't even watched it myself yet because there's two contenders that are very great in the, in the same weight class and they're going against each other in the finals. And I'm looking forward to watching that. Well, you know what? In Noah, we have no less because Noah, we're seeing, we're watching somebody that is a great man. This is a great individual that lived for God during a very difficult time. You know, there are times in our life when we feel like we're the only ones. We feel like everybody else is doing something a different way. Everybody else is going the wrong direction. And you know what? We're never correct in that. Everybody else is not going. Just look around the room. Here's a whole bunch of people gathered among you that are headed the same direction you are. So we're not the only ones. You know what? Noah is the one person, I think, throughout the history of the world that we can look to. And he was the only one. And not just on a local. We could maybe look to Lot because he was maybe the only one in Sodom. But Noah was the only one on the face of the earth. And he got it right. And you know what? Sometimes we're tempted. We think, well, everybody else is doing it. Why, why shouldn't I just go the same way? It would just be easier. Why didn't I just go the same way? You know what? Sometimes people want to be with a group when they're going that way. But when it's payday, you don't want to be with that group. Look at Noah. He was the only one that didn't go that direction. He's also the only one going into the ark. Do you want to be with the rest of the group at that time? No. But you know what? He was a solid example for us to, to mirror and to live by as we look at the details within his life. In fact, he's, he's referenced in other places in the Bible as being one of maybe the top three. When we look at Ezekiel chapter 14 and verse 14, it says, Even if these three men... Now what's happening is God's about to, to judge the city of Jerusalem. And he's going to bring this judgment upon Jerusalem. And, and he says this, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they would deliver but their own lives by their righteousness, declares the Lord God. So Noah gets singled out. Noah, Daniel, and Job get singled out of all the other Old Testament characters. And there's a lot of great ones. Think Moses is in that list. Joshua's in that list. There's Elijah. There's a lot of great people in the Old Testament. But these three get singled out and God says, look, even if these three people were alive in the city today, you know what I would do? I would pull them out of the city and destroy the city. In fact, he, he repeats it in verse 20. He repeats exactly the same thing, but he adds one thing. He said, not even their children. <laughs> Noah, I don't know the exact spiritual condition of all of Noah's children. We get a little bit of a clue with Ham. But when we, when we see... When we see this, I've often wondered, why does Noah's children, do they all go in because of his righteousness? Did his righteousness deliver to the family or do they all mirror him? Do they have the same character that he has? And I don't, I don't have the answer on all of that. But you know what God says at this point in Ezekiel? He says, even if Noah, Job, and Daniel were here, they wouldn't even save their own children. 
through this, they would save only themselves. So obviously the city of Jerusalem had become very corrupt in, in need of the judgment of God. Well, we learned some other things about Noah as we surf through the, the New Testament. In Hebrews 11.7, says, By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed the ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. And so Noah, a great amount of faith, a great man of faith, being warned about events yet unseen. You know, if we read through uh, the Bible from what we can understand up to this point, it's highly possible, I'd call it probable, that uh, they didn't even know rain yet. Because it starts out back in in Genesis in the beginning, it says that the, the plants and the trees and all that stuff was watered from the dew from the ground. And so it's very possible that God is telling Noah, look, Noah, I want you to build a big boat, and it is huge. We'll get into the dimensions of it next week. But he says, I want you to build this really big boat on a chunk of dry land here because it's going to rain for 40 days, and Noah is going to be, it's going to do what? It's very probable that rain wasn't even part of our system yet, that dew was part of our system. And we'll learn more about that next week, why that would be the case. But uh, uh, at any rate, at least he's never seen anything like the global flood. In fact, we've never seen it again since because God promised that he would not flood the world that way uh, again in the future. And so Noah, seeing things yet unseen, he's just taking God at his word for it. Don't really understand what's going to happen. Don't really understand why. Just start building the ark. Well, as we look at this then, Noah is a great example of what? Well, he was the only one living the way he was supposed to in a very ungodly society. He was, as we were to put it in our day, he was a Christian living in a non-Christian world. And he did it successfully. He did it well. And so in that sense, then, we can learn from him. We need to be the same thing. We're Christians living in a non-Christian world. And, you know, we've had the privilege for a long time, and I hope it extends, actually, but we've had the privilege of being brought up in a Christian nation. We're in a nation that was started by Christians for the freedom of our religion so that we could flourish here and the church could flourish here. And so we've had it great. Of all the people in the world, we have a gr- we've had it soft. But we've noticed that our nation has crept away from that. We've noticed that we've slid and, and we've gotten uh, into what people are identifying more now as a, a post-Christian era. And so, but you know, we don't know what it's going to do. I keep praying for, for revivals to take place and for people to come, for, come to Christ and maybe our nation will head back to its roots a little bit more, you know, and veer back that way. Or maybe it will continue to decline. I'm not sure which. But you know what? I do know this. That no matter which way the nation goes, I know which way I need to go. And I need to go the way Noah went. And as he lived in that very ungodly place, uh, he gave us some principles that we can use as our, as our nation has uh, drifted away from where it started as well. Well, the, what I see within here is, is four different reasons. Now, all these reasons, I started out studying through this passage, and, and I read through it a few times. I always, I always read through and go through the passages many times 
Um, before I go to commentaries, before I go back to my old notes that I've taken on it and times that I've studied it in the past, I just want to make sure that I just got just the Word of God in my mind and, and, and that I get the flow of thought and the direction and everything that it's talking about. And you know what I found myself doing? After I'd gone through the passage a few times, I, I, can't, I had two questions. I thought, now what do we learn in this passage? What do we learn about God? And what do we learn about man? Because there's clearly a lot to learn about, about both. And then I found that, you know what, predominantly as we look at what do we learn about God, we're going to see man through him. We obviously see some things about man. We see that conscience is not enough. Right? Because at first mankind was in a state of innocence until they ate the fruit and that brought sin into the world. But from that point up to the flood, it looks like man was governed pretty much by his conscience. When, when God uh, approached Cain, he just appealed to Cain's conscience to do the right thing. And Cain violated his conscience and did the wrong thing. Now, when we get done with the flood, God's going to institute human government. There's going to start to be an external restraint on the behavior of mankind. But up to this point, there was no external restraint on mankind. There were no laws. There was no government. There was no police force. And so mankind was restrained internally just by his conscience. But the problem with that is is that we can sear our conscience. We can corrupt our conscience. If our conscience isn't continually fed by the Word of God, then our conscience can, can be dulled. And that's what happened. We see a model of that in Cain as Cain grew worse rather than... Uh, Answering to God's plea for his conscience, he violated his conscience and became more corrupt. And the Bible says that the rest of the world followed Cain rather than Seth. That the world became more corrupt and more wicked to the point where all their thoughts and all their intentions were only evil all the time. They get labeled as violent. We have these satanic attacks on the bloodline also that we looked at last time. So there's satanic influence. There's idolatry going on. There's all kinds of, of evil that mankind has just given himself over to except for, except for Noah. Now, why didn't Noah? Well, as we look through this passage, we're going to kind of go back and forth a little bit. But we're going to be focused mainly on the things that we learn about God. Because the things that we learn about God impact who we are as man. It impacted Noah. And you know what the fact of the matter is, is we really do respond to, we act upon what we truly believe. Not necessarily what we say we believe in our hearts, but what we truly believe in our hearts. Everybody acts. I was thinking about that even uh, last night. I was thinking about it a little bit. And I thought, you know, sometimes we, we describe people and say, well, they, they are a person that, they, well, they have this faith, but they don't live by it. It's actually a misnomer. Uh, we might say we have a faith and our actions are inconsistent with that, but what that is called, Jesus called it hypocrisy. The Apostle John says we're a liar if we do that. And so we, what happens is we actually, our actions fulfill what our true belief uh, system really is. And so that's what we're going to look at here a little bit today is what are the things that we know about God because those are the reasons... Those are the reasons that we should be a Christian. How do we live as a Christian in a non-Christian world? By being one. Why do we be, why should we be a Christian in a non-Christian world? Well, the first reason is because God is a God of judgment. 
That's what, and you know what, I actually had the order of, of the different points that I came up with, the truths that I came up with in a different order, and I ended up shuffling them around, and I brought this one right back to the beginning. At first, I didn't have it at the beginning. I brought this one right back to the beginning, and you want to know why? It's because this really is the dominant thing that stands out, isn't it? The Bible says that mankind grew in its wickedness and became so wicked that his thoughts were always evil all the time, his intentions. He was violent towards, towards one another. It was just a horrible time on the face of the earth for mankind. And what do we see is God's response? Judgment. He's bringing judgment. God is a God of judgment. If you look all through the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, God is a God of, of, of love and mercy. And God is also a God of wrath and judgment. They're both. In fact, that is, that is why the cross, the cross, I love it that it's a cross. It's an intersection of two points, right? Because, because what happens at the cross, you have the judgment and the wrath of God coming and intersecting with the faith or with the love and the mercy of God. And all is accomplished. The cross, Roman tells us, is the place where God can be seen as both just and the justifier of those who believe in Jesus. Because you see, God is a holy God. He's not only a loving God. He is a loving God, but He's also a holy God. And as a holy God, all sin is an affrontal to Him. All sin is in a, re- a rebellion, a, an attack against the nature and the character of God. And God is holy, so He cannot just overlook sin. He has to judge sin. In fact, you know, the next thing on the calendar for the, as far as prophecy goes, the next thing is the tribulation period. And what is the tribulation period? Well, it starts out as birth pains. It ends up in a, in the time of the, what's called the great tribulation, which is the last half of it. And that is God pouring out His wrath upon unbelieving, unrepentant mankind before He comes back and sets up His kingdom. God is absolutely a God of judgment. You know, I remember reading in a book a statement one time that says God, where this character is supposed to be God, says, I don't judge sin. And I thought, holy cow, what part of the Bible didn't they read? Oh yeah, all of it it must have been. Because all through the Bible you see judgment. Right? I mean... Look at, the, look at the flood. Back before that, what have we seen so far? God judges. He pronounces a curse on Adam and Eve for eating the wrong fruit and He kicks them out of the garden. Then mankind gets more and more corrupt. So what does God do? He judges it and wipes it out with a total flood. After the flood, He calls... Uh, and you have the Tower of Babel. He confuses their language and judges them there and spreads them out because they weren't doing what He wanted them to do. And then He chooses Abraham to be His chosen one. And what happens? Abraham moves with his nephew Lot and they move out to the area. Lot ends up down in Sodom. God goes down and delivers Lot out of Sodom and destroys the rest of the city. God's people end up down in Egypt and they end up mistreated for 400 years and He delivers them out of Egypt and, and He annihilates the Egyptians through all these plagues in doing it. When God's people have wicked kings and they follow wicked paths and they commit idolatry, God steps back and allows their enemies to come and take them off into captivity. Even after the days of Jesus, shortly after the days of Jesus, A.D. 70, God steps back and allows Rome to come in and ransack Jerusalem and no no stone is left unturned, even as Jesus would say. 
if you don't get one thing out of the Bible, you need to get the fact that God judges sin. Why? Because that's an indication of how horrific our sin is. You see, we tolerate sin. The things that we feel like doing, we don't see them as, oh, they're not that bad. That's because we're comparing them to a sinful nature, and they are that bad. You see, God, God is one who judges sin. In the New Testament, in Second Peter chapter 2, verses 4-10, through 10, it says, for if, now, now notice the, the logic here. This is an if-then statement. It says, if these things, then this. Okay? And so as we go through this, we're going to see about four different places where he uses the word if. For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. And that refers to what we learned about last week. Verse 5, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if, and obviously that's what we're talking about this week, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued a righteous lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Now we get to the then. So he says, if this happened, casting the demons to hell, if this happened, flooding the world during the time of Noah, if this happened, destroying the city of Sodom after delivering Lot, then, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. You see the point that he's making? He's look, God is looking back through his own history, and he's telling us, look at how I delivered the righteous, judged the wicked. And then I deliver the righteous, and I judge the wicked. This is what I do. I deliver the righteous, I judge the wicked. This is a pattern. And the reason he's telling him that, because just one chapter later in the same book, Second Epistle of Peter, chapter 3, he says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, and what he's talking about at that point is some people are saying, oh, when's, when's Christ going to come back? He's not going to come back. It's been a long time. Still hasn't come back. And they're going to scoff, and they're going to mock at that idea. And he says... He is going to come back, and this time the judgment's not going to take place with water, just like he promised it never would again. It's going to take place with fire, and the elements are going to melt. He's going to burn the place. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn, but according to his promise... We are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. You see, the point that he is making in Second Peter there is he said, look, as we can see in the past, God repeatedly does this, destroys, judges the ungodly, delivers the righteous. There's coming a day. He says people will scoff at it. People will mock at it. Oh, it's not going to come. Jesus isn't coming back. He says he is. He's being patient, but he's coming. When he does, everything that you know to be familiar is going to melt. It's going to be judged by fire. 
He says, so, knowing that this is the case, how should you live? In other words, we need to do the same thing that Noah did. Noah was told by God, I'm going to judge the world. The world has gotten wicked and sinful, and I'm going to destroy it. And I'm going to bring a flood. Now, it wasn't going to be tomorrow in Noah's days. It's going to be down the road a ways. But Noah, believing God and believing things yet unseen, acted accordingly. And what did he do? He started to build the ark. He recognized that God wasn't, this wasn't a bluff, that God is a God of judgment, and he's going to judge the world because of sin. And so Noah got, to be, got busy constructing the ark. And so we see that God is, God is a God of judgment. And you know what? It's not the most fun part to focus on, is it? It really isn't. It's so much more fun to focus on the love of God and the mercy of God and the patience of God. And we're going to do that. We're going to do that. But you know what? You don't fully appreciate the love of God and the mercy of God and the patience of God unless you recognize the judgment of God. When you realize what kind of condemnation that we're under, then all of a sudden you realize the love that it must have took for him to make that way of salvation. You realize the mercy that he's extending to us. He's not extending us a helping hand when we just need a boost. He's extending to us, to us life when we're worthy of death. Now the, the glory of God starts to appear magnificent because we see the contrast between what we deserve and the judgment and the wrath of God and what we get, which is the, the peace and the love of God and the, and the salvation of God. But it starts with, we see that judgment. Noah was forewarned, this judgment is coming. Because of that judgment, you know what you need? Salvation. And what does God provide or have Noah start to get to work on? The ark, the way of salvation. So we see that God is a God of judgment, but God is also a God of mercy. He's a God of mercy. And how do we see this? We see this very clearly because God tells Noah to build the ark. Noah, get busy and build that ark. And not only that, but as we looked in Second uh, Peter chapter two, there I think verse five out of that verse four through ten or four through eleven, it, it talked about Noah and it said Noah was a proclaimer of righteousness, which means simply this: for the 120 years or so that Noah built the ark, he was also proclaiming the righteous decree of God. Which means, seems to me. The way of salvation is open to more than just Noah. Otherwise, why bother proclaiming the way of salvation? But you know what happened instead? I'm certain of it. Is that people did just like they do now with the coming of Christ. Just like Second Peter told us, people are going to come and they're going to mock the coming of Christ. It's been 2,000 years and he hasn't come. When are you people going to realize it's just not happening? Can you imagine the ridicule that Noah must have endured building, building a ship that size in a place that probably hasn't rained? It's going to flood. God's going to judge the world. It's going to rain for 40 days, 40 nights. God's going to judge the world. You're all going to drown. You know, he might have got people to look, listen to him the first week, maybe the first year, probably not the first decade. But when we're pushing a century, it still hasn't rained. Noah could say, good, because I'm not done yet. <laughs> but but you, you see what I'm saying? 
Noah believed in what he was told but couldn't see yet. And that's exactly what we're told but we can't see yet. God said there's a coming judgment. But you know what? We have something Noah didn't have. He could see the judgment that happened in the garden. We see the judgment that happened in the garden, the judgment that happened during Noah's time, the judgment that happened in Sodom. We see a definite pattern in God's behavior here and an outright proclamation of what he accomplished for us. But when we see this, what is the ark? The ark is an extension of God's mercy. God in his mercy offers them a way of salvation. And you know what? We've already seen it. Remember going, going through the Garden of Eden. God cannot finish. He can hardly start pronouncing the curse and He starts talking about the seed of the woman crushing the head of the serpent. Right? They're not even out of the garden yet and He's already killed the sacrificial lamb to die in their place to provide the covering for their sins. So, so God is already extending His mercy before He even gets done announcing the curse. That's just the way He is. And we see that all through the Bible, whenever God pronounces judgment, He also provides a way of salvation. He's going to flood the earth. Out, come the, uh, out comes the ark. The ark is going to be the way out. It's going to be the way of salvation. He, he's going in to, to destroy Sodom. And Abraham gets a chance to talk to God about Sodom. And he says, what if there's, what if there's 50 righteous people there? Are you really going to destroy the the righteous with the wicked? God says, no, I won't. If there's 50 righteous people, I'll leave it. Abraham says, wait, wait, wait. What if there's 45? What if there's 40? What if there's 30? What if there's 25? He gets them all the way down to 10. What if there's 10 righteous people in the city? Will you still destroy the city? God says, no, for 10 righteous people, I'll leave it. Leave the whole city for just 10 people. And he gets there and all there is is a lot. He takes Lot and his family, delivers him out of the city, and destroys it. But you see God's mercy already. Yep, ten righteous people, I'll save it. You see the same thing when you look at, um, oh, when I think of uh, Israel's, Israel's history. Right? I think of during the time of Moses. During the time of Moses, God curses the people with venomous snakes. They rebelled against God, and so God sends these venomous snakes into the camp. But you know what? At the same time he sends the venomous snakes into the camp, he tells Moses, take uh, your rod and make a bronze serpent around the top of your rod, and you hold that rod up. And so that anybody that gets bit by the snake, they have a way out. If they believe, they go, they look up, they, they go and look up at the serpent on, on top of the staff, and they'll be healed. So the same time that God gives the curse, the judgment... He gives the way of salvation. Look up at the snake, you'll be healed. You know what? When Jesus would come and talk to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, when you get to verse 14, he says, Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man will be lifted up, so that whosoever believes in him will have eternal life. God is always doing that. He's always providing a way of salvation. Why? Because he is a merciful, he's a merciful God. In Israel's history, when you get up to the prophets, and the nation, first the nation of Israel, because remember it divided. nation of Israel, after that the nation of Judah. When God sends the prophets to tell them, look, your enemies are going to come and, and carry you off into captivity because of your idolatry, because uh, you don't defend the cause of the poor, because you don't take care of the widow and the orphan among you, because you're unjust, you, you're, they're going to carry you off into captivity for your sins. You know what? In every one of those prophets, 
God can hardly get done telling about them being carried off and He's already saying, but you know what? There's going to be a new day and I'm going to bring you back. There's going to be a new glorious time in Israel. There's going to be... He continually... It's like He cannot just pronounce judgment. When He starts to pronounce judgment, He already starts looking forward to the time when He's going to bring you back. He already starts preparing a way of salvation, a way of deliverance out of it. God is a God of mercy. No doubt about it. But not only is He a God of mercy, He's also a God of patience. He's a God of patience. Why, why hasn't Christ come back? When you read through the New Testament, it's pretty clear the early disciples thought He would come back in their lifetime. We talked about it a little bit in Sunday school this morning. I think God's plan, His desire is for every Christian all the way up until Christ comes back to be anxiously awaiting His return because that's our glorious hope. But why hasn't He come back? You know, in Second Peter chapter 3, it says the reason He hasn't come back is because He doesn't care if it takes a day or a thousand years. He... His only concern is that all people come to repentance. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all come to repentance. That's why he's waiting, because he's patient. You know, the people that are mocking him, that are saying, he's not going to come, why wouldn't he come back by now? You know what? They ought to be humbled, because the reason he hasn't come back by now is because he's given them more time. Them more opportunity to take part of this salvation. We see God's patience throughout this passage in several different ways. Notice when it talks about, like at the verse 4, where it finished talking about um, the sons of God came into the daughters of men, you know, and you have that demonic activity and the corruption of the world, and the world gets incredibly violent and, and thoughts are only evil all the time. Notice what God says I shall not always, my soul shall not always strive with man. But his days will be 120. 120 years. Now, well, what does that mean? What it means is God says, all right, I'm going to do something. And do you know what I'm going to do it? In 120 years. 120 years. When God decides I'm going to wipe mankind off the face of the earth, it's not a rash decision. He's not saying I'm going to do it right now or I'm going to do it tomorrow. It's, I'm going to do it in 120 years from now. That's patience. And he gets Noah to start building the ark, which is going to take 120 years. He's going to build that ark, proclaiming righteousness the whole time. What is God doing? He's exercising patience. Can you imagine? I mean, we do this with our kids, don't we? I remember, you remember, anybody ever take your kids to McDonald's Playland? And you get the kids up in the slides and all that kind of stuff where you really don't want to have to go up there and drag them out of there? And so I see, I see parents and stuff do this today. My days are over. I remember I was so proud one, one time because we went through a Growing Kids God's Way class, which, by the way, we own it if anybody ever wants to use it. But um, uh, Growing Kids God's Way class, and they taught you, you know what? Don't count for your kids. If your kid's smart enough to come by the count of three, they're smart enough to come without counting at all. And I thought, well, i got a point there. In fact, they're probably smart enough that they're not going to come until three if you give them to three. But can you, so, so what do we do? We say, you know what, come on down. They don't come. I'm going to count to three. One, two, two and a bit, two and a half. <laughs> you know? 
What's happening? They know that you're not serious yet because they know exactly when you're going to get serious because they've already tested you in that and they know where the line is. But what, what's God doing? No, I don't, I don't want to compare him to counting for your children. Don't count for your children. But what is God doing? He's saying, all right, we're never going to come here again. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> He's saying, all right, that's it. 120 years. That's the day. 120 years, you think? Who's going to take that seriously? You know who did? Noah. The, the only one, apparently. But he took it seriously. God's, God's patience, God's mercy. He's a God of judgment. He's going to judge sin. But he gives us so much patience, so much room, so much room for the, for, to, to come to Christ. In fact, it even refers to his patience in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20, talking about Noah's situation. It says, because they formerly did not obey, that's referring to those angels that we were talking about, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. He talks about that is a, a reference point for God's patience. It's an example of God's patience, that giving them that 120 years. So you say, well, why would God destroy the people? Well, they were wicked continually. And he told them they had 120 years to repent and they didn't do it. So who can you really lay the blame at the feet of here? Well, obviously mankind. God never does anything wrong. But he was patient. And another example of God's patience, uh, Methuselah, Noah's great-grandpa. You know what the name Methuselah means? It means when he is dead, it shall pass. That's what it means. And that's exactly what happened. The year Methuselah died, the flood happened. Now, the interesting thing is, if you look through the Bible and see who lived the longest of all the people that we have recorded in all of history, Methuselah. He lived to 969 years old, oldest of anybody. Now, isn't it amazing that God, when Methuselah is born 969 years later, God knows what's going to happen. They name him Methuselah. When he is dead, it shall pass. And God has him live longer than anybody else before it takes place. You see the patience, the patience of God. Not only that, but just the fact, look at the big picture of what's going on. God doesn't do the flood until the thoughts of everybody all the time are completely evil. Now, all of a sudden, America doesn't look so bad, does it? Can you imagine what it would be like to live in a society where half of everybody's thoughts were evil and violent all the time? I can't say all the time at the end of that, I guess. That's a half of them. That could be a horrible place to live. I would say that when it gets to where all the people's thoughts are evil half the time, God is probably time for judgment. You know what? God said no. He did, he did not judge them. He did not judge them until all the people's thoughts were evil all the time. That's amazing. You know, I found myself thinking at times, uh, when does America ripe for God's judgment? I mean, we got... Uh, I find myself in a quandary a little bit because like even in our... Look at our spectrum that we have today. Today we have uh, states. I was excited to hear... Georgia, this last week, 
said no abortion once you can hear the heartbeat. You can hear the heartbeat very early. It almost gets rid of all abortions. And I'm like, yes, things are moving the right way. But then you hear of other states like Virginia that say, you know what, we're going to kill them even after they're born. And I think, holy cow, I can't believe somebody's advocating that. But many of the leadership are advocating that. And I think, when are we ready for God's judgment? But then I think of Georgia, and I say, man, there's a lot of good people making some good headroad over there. And so I look at it and I say, boy, we're a long way. We're a long way from, now I don't know where God's line is for America, but we're a long way from what they were during the time of the flood. God is extremely patient. You know what, in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 16, and they shall come back here. What it's talking about is uh, he's talking about Abraham's descendants. He's telling them that they're going to be down in Egypt. They're going to stay down in Egypt. They're going to be mistreated for 400 years. And then they're going to be brought back to the promised land. But notice what he says. It's contingent on something. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. 400 years, the children of Israel would live in Egypt as slaves being mistreated by the Egyptians before God would bring them back and take them to the promised land. Why? Because the Amorites, the people, them and others that lived within the promised land, God says their cup of iniquity is not yet full. In other words, they're doing a lot of horrible things, but it's, it's not completely saturated yet. And when God brings the children of Israel out of Egypt and takes them into Canaan, the land of the Amorites and the others, he's going to have them destroy men, women, and children. Not unlike the flood. As an arm of his judgment. But he gave them 400 years to go the right direction. 400 years. That's patience. God is patient. You know what the problem is? Is that a lot of times we misinterpret the patience of God. Instead of looking at it and saying, wow, God is so patient, we look at it and say, God doesn't care. And that's what happened like in, in when he wrote Psalm chapter 50 and verse 21. It says, these things you have done, and I have been silent. So in other words, Israel, and if you look previously in that passage, it lists a lot of sins that they participated in. And he, he says, You've, you've committed all these different sins. And he says, you know what? I remained silent. I didn't say anything. I didn't come down and judge you. And he says, and I remained silent. Now because of that, what happened? You thought that I was one like yourself. But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as a sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. You know, it's not unlike, I remember seeing a, a post on Facebook one time and somebody made a comment about a moral issue and then somebody else got on there and made a comment and said, you know what, I'm living in that which you called more immorality and I have a good life. I have a good job. I have a good home. I, have a, I drive nice cars. I have, I have things very nice. So obviously God has not judged me for what you are calling immorality. Oh, that's a dangerous place to be. You see, what they're doing is they're not recognizing the patience of God as the patience of God. 
They're saying, you know what? God hasn't said anything. God hasn't done anything to me. He hasn't made me lose my job, take my home, or any of these things. So obviously, he doesn't have a problem with it. When he says very clearly within his word that he does. And he says, look, just because I haven't torn your life apart doesn't mean that I approve of what you're doing. I might be being very patient with you to have you recognize that as it says in in Romans chapter 2, the goodness of God or the kindness of God should lead us to repentance. A lot of times we mistake the kindness of God for approval of the lifestyle that we might be living in. It says these things you have done and I, oops, got to go forward. Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And so you see, we have a, we have a God. Why should we be a Christian in an unchristian world? Because we have a God that is a God of judgment. The sins that we participate in, they're not just overlooked. They, they either are answered in the cross or we bear that judgment. But we also have a God that's merciful. That's why the cross. That's why he's reached out to us in mercy. And he's patient as he does it. He's, he's waiting. He's, he's giving us opportunity, ample opportunity. And I can't tell you for you and you couldn't tell me for me wherever God's line is that he draws in the sand for us not to cross. Or where, how far, or how full our cup of iniquity may be. But we need to be Christians in an unchristian world because it's the only wise solution. Just as Noah took the right path, he swam upstream. He went counterculture in his life to live for God, to walk with God, and it was his deliverance. It's the same. With us, we have that same God that's a God of judgment, but he's also a God of mercy. He's a God of patience. And lastly, he's a God of compassion. God of compassion. Now, the reason I say that is because you you notice that none of this is robotic with God. God who knows the end from the beginning, who knows all things, who's in control, who's sovereign in the world. And it's not just it's not just matter of fact. Notice it says that he regrets making mankind. It grieved him. It says it grieved him to his heart. Now, we struggle with that a little bit. Now, what does that exactly mean? Because if God is all-powerful and all-knowing and sovereign and all that stuff, then and there are specific statements in the Bible that say that he cannot have regrets. In other words, why do we have regrets? We have regrets because we made a mistake. Oh, I wish I would have done this that way instead of this way. And when we first look at this passage, it looks like that's what it's saying. God's saying, I'm sorry that I made mankind. It says that. Well, does it mean that he wishes he wouldn't have? Does it mean that if he had it to do over again, that he would go a different route? No, it doesn't. Now, how do we know that? Well, there's two places in the Bible where it says that God regretted doing something. Right here where it says he regretted making mankind. And in 1 Samuel chapter 15 where it says that he regretted making Saul the king of Israel. Because Saul did not walk in God's ways. And he brought judgment upon himself and the kingdom was torn away from him and given to David. But he did not glorify God as king. So God says, I regret that I have 
made Saul king. Well, if we look at that situation, it gives us a little bit of insight into this situation. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, it says in verses 10 and 11, The word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. So he uses that same word again. I regret. I regret that I did this. But then if we go on a little bit farther, what do we find in 1 Samuel 15, 29? So same chapter, a few verses later, it says, And also the glory of Israel, that's referring to God, the glory of Israel, will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. And so when you first look at these couple passages, you think, well, are they contradictory? Are they, is one saying God has regrets and the other one says he doesn't have regrets? Because notice the second one says that because of who he is, because he's God, he has no regrets. If he was man, he could have regrets because we, can, we make bad decisions all the time. And so we might regret making a certain decision. It was the wrong way to go or another way was the better way to go. But God, because he's God cannot have regrets, because if he can have regrets, then it means he did it the wrong way. So several verses earlier, when the same author writes that God regretted it, he himself would have to see that it was a contradiction if they meant exactly the same thing. So what does it mean when it says that he regretted it, and then later he doesn't regret anything? Well, I think it has to do with emotion. Because God is feeling the regret of it. The Bible says that it grieved him to his heart. Now, could God really have regretted making mankind as in, if I had it to do over, I wouldn't have done it? No, because then why would he deliver Noah and start all over and have all mankind all over again? So it can't mean, I, I would not do it this way again. It can't mean that. But what does it mean? It means that he feels deeply the sorrow of the judgment of what's going on and what has to happen. It's kind of like this. Um, uh, John Piper, when he uh, was asked a question on this subject, he gave this answer. He said, you know, he said, let me put it in my own experience. He says, if my son does something wrong and and I spank him, for doing what was wrong, to teach him to do right. He says, I've done right. He says, now if my son responds to the discipline in a negative way and decides to run away, and he runs away, and then they find him, he says, I would feel regret over the whole situation and that it caused an alienation with my son and that he ran away, he said, but I would not feel a regret that I did the certain action. He said, I would, I, would, I would recognize that it was right for me to spank my child, to discipline my child over this situation. But I would regret the alienation that came as a result of it. And, and he kind of uses that to mirror it. I don't know that these answer, answer completely the issue here, but I do think that we're on the right track. But you know what? When we, look at our, when we look at our makeup, and who's made in the image of God, in our emotions, it is possible to be in a situation 
where you know that you did the right thing, but you feel the pain of it. Right? And I think that's exactly what's happening with God. God knows He has done and is doing the right thing, but He feels the pain of it. He feels the anguish. He feels the separation. He feels the sorrow. You know what? That's, that's an awesome thing about God. And think, we're finite beings, which means our emotions and stuff, we deal with things on a finite level. God is an infinite being. Can you imagine the complexity of His emotions? And that's the thing. When God judges the world, when God puts His Son on the cross, it's not unemotional. It's not mechanical. Just because He knew that it was going to happen from the foundation of the world, just because of some of these things, these things even planned to happen from the foundation of the world, He still doesn't go through them without feeling. You know, I can know something's coming and at the point where it happens, be very emotional about it. I think I've seen it most clearly in, in my experience, actually, with our children being born. And it's actually, I'm kind of sharing the experience, but it was my wife's. You know, we have five kids, and I got to watch all five of them be born. I saw something on Facebook the other day. Uh, they have some device now where you can put these electrodes on your stomach, and a man can get a sensation of what it feels like to have a baby. And I thought, what fool invented that? <laughs> or, or a woman. A woman, I can see why she would invent that. There's some comeuppance here. But I thought, boy, you're not strapping that thing on me. I saw it five times. And, and you know what? You get toward, uh, I can remember times where, I mean, we plan to have kids, we're excited about having kids, we're going to have, we find out if it's a boy or a girl, we're excited about that. And then you get right up to the labor starts and all of a sudden Lisa says, oh no, I remember this, I don't want to do this. (laughs) Now, does she really not want to do this? Yes, in the worst way, and no at the same time, right? Because yes, she still wants that baby. Yes, we're, but oh boy the moment things start to move, right? Well, you know what? God is not unlike that. It's not that He's going the wrong direction, making the wrong decisions. He's done everything right. But His relationship with us is not just mechanical. It's emotional. Or maybe I shouldn't say not just mechanical. It's not mechanical at all. But He has emotions toward us, toward people. He loves us. He loves the world that He's promised a deliverer for and provided a deliverer for. And even when the He takes no delight in the death of the wicked, when people spurn God and rebel against God and kick against God and demand to go to hell instead of heaven, and they finally go there, it's not like He's delighting in that. Because He loved the world so much that He gave His own Son for the salvation of it. But he's also not. It would not be right or even possible for him to stop being who he is. He cannot but judge sin. And he cannot but provide mercy either. He cannot but be patient. He just is so patient and so compassionate that while us little ants 
throw spurn and ridicule in his face. He continues to patiently wait for our salvation.